live stream's delayed. <laughs> you were still doing music when I left the building. <laughs> now I know, now I know. Um, good morning, I have announcements for all of you and for those of you watching from home, also I'm out of breath, so. <sighs> you guys, I did a yoga class yesterday with a friend that invited me. It was weird, that's all I have to say about it. It was weird, I was like, what are we doing? We were laying on the floor, just like setting our intentions. I was like, I don't know what my intentions are. So I don't think yoga's for me, or maybe it is. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Good call. I was like, oh, we do that at the end of class. Awkward. All right, announcements, you guys. This Tuesday, so two days from now, is when we will do our Cedar Way and Vision House deliveries. And we still have quite a few produce items that we are needing from that list. And if you are able at all, it's like potatoes, I think is mostly what is left, some bananas as well, some diapers. Um, so if you're interested or able to help with that at all, you can um, get the link by texting the word helping to the Brookview number, or that's it. That's, that's the only way you're gonna get that link, I'm trying to think. Is that what that says? There it is, all right. Oh boy, what's next? We're gonna have a newer to Brookview lunch and that's coming on Sunday, March 12th, right after church. And that is for any of you ha who have not been to that lunch before. So you don't have to be brand new around here. We have had people who've come to that lunch after having been here for two years or so. And we just love to sit around the tables with all of you and to be able to get to know you a little bit. And so we'd love to have you come to that. Um, we'd love for you to RSVP because we will be providing lunch for you and for your children as well. And so the way that you do that is by texting um, lunch to the Brookview number, or you can go to your online communication card and there's a little box there. And we'd love to know how many adults are coming with you and how many children so that we know how to, um, to provide for everyone that's coming. The other thing that we have coming up is life groups. So we run life groups on a quarter system here at Brookview and our spring quarter will begin on March 20th and then that goes through the end of May to mid-June depending on the group and the leader and what's going on in that group. And if you have not been a part of a life group, we just so invite you to do that. It is such a great way to um, hear about what's going on personally in other people's lives, um, but also to be known as well. And life groups have been the lifeblood of our church for so long um, and a lifeblood for me in my own life. And so if you are on the fence about that, um, don't be anymore, just dive in. Uh, we have all sorts of different groups that meet and some of them are even online. And so I know there are some that they can't figure out childcare, but their kids go to bed at a certain time and they can log in and, and be online with other people. So please, if you're interested in that, sign up on your online communication card, or you can also text the word group to the Brookview number and Jason will reach out to you and kind of let you know what life groups are like and what the commitment is for those. 
I mentioned that online communication card. We love to hear from you guys. And so um, go to brookviewchurch.com forward slash contact and fill that out. And that's it. Have a great morning. I'm going back next door. Rebecca, your filler skills are next level. That was so good, girl. Also, I just want to clear the air about something. So last week, we had a smaller attendance in here because it was like midwinter break and a long weekend and all that, and people went to like Europe. And so I said, hey, the people who really love Jesus are here just to honor those that were here. And then some of you watched online and you let me know that you love Jesus too. <laughs> and so I just want to say we are a gracious community of Jesus lovers here and afar. God bless us, everyone. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, so last week we, we started a new series about life in exile. And we are focusing on becoming a creative minority. And if that doesn't, you're like, what does any of that mean? If you missed last week's message and yet you love Jesus, um, I just want you to know it was, a, it was a foundational message in kind of where we're going between now and Easter. And so if you're able, please check that out on YouTube or Spotify or iTunes or one of the other places that these sermons go in the stratosphere somewhere. Uh, but to recap, the basic idea is that we are now living in a new cultural moment. Over the last few hundred years, and particularly over the last two or three decades, the ground underneath our feet has moved. And we are now living in a full-on post-Christian world. And, and in the Bible, the metaphor that best captures this kind of a cultural moment is the metaphor of exile. It is a thread that is woven all through Scripture, and it's used whenever followers of Jesus live um, as a minority in a culture where the dominant values are alien or even run hostile to the way of Jesus. So last week we said there are, there are two postures that we, we want to avoid when we're experiencing exile, and the, and the first posture is separatism. So th this posture of forming a, like a holy huddle where everything in our bubble is carefully selected to be Christian. It's a little subculture that, that stays isolated from the world. So you, you have your, your Christian church and your Christian school and your Christian friends and your Christian coffee shop and your Christian bookstore and you make sure you have a Christian dentist and uh, your, your Christian auto mechanic and your Christian pedicurist or whatever a subculture. Okay, but then on the flip side is, is kind of going the opposite direction, and it's syncretism. 
So it's just, it's just assimilating right into the host culture where we're just swallowed up by all of its values and all of its ways. And, and for most of us, you guys, I mean, I think about our church, most of us are not drawn like to, to uh, separatism all that much. The main temptation for most of us is syncretism. But either way, the, the better way forward is to live as a creative minority. And I, I used and really like John Tyson's description of what that is. And he writes this. He says, a Christian community, this is what a creative minority is. It's a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and changing or challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. And this is, to me, this is beautiful and it's exciting. And you guys, it is so stinking hard to do. Um, Jonathan Sachs writes this. He said, to become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but, but also to transform the larger society of which you are part. And I'd argue that that there's no closer parallel to our cultural moment, like in the Old Testament, than that of Israel trying to navigate exile. So for the next few weeks, uh, we are going to follow the story of these four exiles in Babylon, and we are going to root most of this series in the book of Daniel. Um, And the book of Daniel is kind of interesting because it breaks in half, like right down the middle. The first six chapters are all about the stories of these four exiles in Babylon. And the last six chapters is all of this hairy uh, uh, prophetic stuff. And you guys, we're going to get into the prophetic stuff a little bit. And it's going to be awesome. Okay, but we're going to spend more more of our time in, in the first half of it. So the plan for today, you guys, is to just work through chapter one. Does that sound good? That feels less than enthusiastic. <laughs> I, you know, uh, that's, I, I, I hope that that sounds good because that's what we're doing. <laughs> so uh, here we go, Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasury house of his God. Now, I want to pause right here and try to paint a little bit of a picture for you of of Babylon, the context for the story that we're about to get into. Babylon was the zenith of civilization in the ancient world in its day. In fact, one of the seven wonders of the world is the hanging gardens of Babylon. And so this is a recreation of how it looked uh, from National Geographic. But the idea is it was filled with, it was a place filled with opulent wealth. It was a majestic city. It was surrounded by a massive wall, and you would enter the city through one of the gates that would be named after, after one of the various Babylonian gods. So here's a recreation from the Pergamum Museum in Berlin of the Ishtar Gate, named after the goddess of love and war, which, by the way, the goddess of love and war. Some of you married people are like, it's all one and the same. 
Okay, so, so <laughs> just, notice how, just notice how opulent this is, right? It's, it's decorated with all the blue and gold and the tile and the, and, and, and the artwork is just over the top. And what this is, is it's just a sign of the opulent wealth of Babylon, as well as the city's just like artistic and architectural brilliance. This was a, Babylon was a culture of hedonism, the absolute pursuit of, of pleasure, but also pursuit of power, right? And there was, there was all kinds of, of, of injustice and all kinds of, so, so here we go. Let's, verse three. Then the king ordered Aspenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Oh, you single ladies, there's your life verse. <laughs> he was able to teach them the language uh, and literature of the Babylonians. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Then get this. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So these are smart, well-educated young men from the nobility in Israel. They, they had been affluent. They have model-esque good looks. Just like you and me, Joe. <laughs> and, and so what you see in Babylon is it's not just enough to be good, right? You have to look good. Right, like image matters. It's not much has changed in two and a half thousand years. And so these men, young men, are put into this three-year cultural immersion program. Verse six, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So the story will follow not all of the Jewish exiles in Babylon, but these four men in particular that are still teenagers, we think, at this point. Okay, and, and next comes a, a key line in the story, verse 8. It says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So in the ancient uh, Near East, in particular in Jewish culture, your, your, your diet, what you would eat or not eat, was like a spiritual marker, right? So Daniel asked to eat a different diet from a different menu. Verse 9. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. We, we shouldn't miss this. God had caused. So even in Babylon, God is present and God is working. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. And so this is the first controlled trial in all of human history. <laughs> Just kidding. So he agreed to do this and tested them for 10 days. 
At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And all the vegans said, (laughs) amen. Yes. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Hmm. So, okay, what exactly is going on here? Well, first off, this is not some, like, God-inspired weight loss plan. So it's not like, yeah, you know, been putting on a little weight. Daniel 1, baby, let's go. <laughs> this, is, this is not intended to be like a template for us to follow. So what exactly is going on? Why is Daniel refusing the royal food and wine? Well, there, there's a lot of debate and a lot of controversy around this. The most probably popular theory is that the king's meat just wasn't kosher. Um, how? We don't know for sure. Another theory is that that this is about um, idols, that the meat had been sacrificed to Babylonian gods. So nobody knows the exact problem, and here's the thing, you guys, it's not the point. The point is that Daniel drew a line in the sand, and he says, no. You know, I'm sorry, but no. I'm, I'm a Hebrew, I'm Jewish, so no. I worship Yahweh, and I follow the Torah, so no thank you to the king's menu. And this experiment works out because God is working in Babylon. Verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. All kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. So it's not just that Daniel is smart or or hardworking. It's that God gave him knowledge and insight, like from the Holy Spirit, uh, gave him knowledge and insight into what? And this is key, into what? Into the language and the literature of who? The Babylonians. So this is fascinating. Through the Holy Spirit, not only did these guys understand and, and immerse themselves in the Torah, but God gave them insight into this culture in which they're now a part, the Babylonian pagan spiritual culture that is all around them. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So they essentially graduate summa cum laude with a PhD in Babylonian, right? (laughs) And Nebuchadnezzar is blown away by their understanding and insight. And then we get to the closing line of chapter one, and it says, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. In other words, Daniel would remain in Babylon in exile for over six decades. And the writer wants us to see that Daniel became like the prophet of exile. He becomes like the prototype or like the archetype for how to not only survive, but how to thrive in exile. So, okay, let's step back and think about what does all of this mean for you and me? Um, there There are two sides to becoming a creative minority, right? On the resistance side, a creative minority must fight off syncretism. We, we have to find a way to stay true to ourselves and true to Jesus and not just get swallowed up by the culture. 
But if that only gets us halfway there, that's, that can just be like a subculture. So we also must engage, right? We must discover ways to be involved in the culture. To not, it's not just resistance, right? It's also engagement. To be a creative minority, we have to have both. So here's the plan for this week. I want to talk about Babylon's strategy to influence Daniel, which means we'll look at Daniel's plan to resist, to stay rooted in his faith, to stay rooted in God's vision for human flourishing. And then in coming weeks, we'll talk about Daniel's strategy and the strategy of, of his friends to, to impact the culture that they're living within. So a lot more in coming weeks about like creative engagement. For today, all I want us to do is to see Babylon's strategies to influence Daniel and his friends and how they rooted and anchored themselves because, you guys, the same four strategies are at play in the culture in which we live. So, first strategy. First strategy is, is isolation. In, in Daniel 4, Daniel, he's isolated. He's separated. Like, think about how the story begins. He's separated from his parents, his family, his home. He's separa- separated from the temple in Jerusalem, from, from church, essentially, for him, from all the religious practices that he has settled into and the routines that have built his faith. And try to remember, we think he's a teenager. Like 14, 15, maybe 16 years old. I mean, he's young, he's impressionable, he's easy to seduce, and there is a social glue that kind of keeps us rooted sometimes that we so easily underestimate. And I think this is why so many 18-year-old kids go off to college, and for a season, you guys, they lose their minds, and they do stupid stuff. Nobody in here would do that, but there are kids that, or it's why people get into trouble like on a business trip right? Like, like to have an affair or go to a strip club or whatever, and it's just like, what the heck? You know, what are you doing? This is out of character. But people do unthinkable stuff when they get unglued from community. So the first step is to get Daniel away from his community of faith, and yet it failed because Daniel found a way to stay rooted, Right? Even in Babylon, he was right there shoulder to shoulder with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and probably some other people as well. And so, guys, if, if we are going to make it in a culture as powerful and seductive as the culture of Seattle, that I, by the way, I love our culture in many regards, but oh my gosh, the pressure, the overwhelming pressure to you name it. Like, if, if we're going to make it here, you guys, we have to stick together. Like, one, okay, so one of the crazy things that happened in COVID that we, that we just saw was the, the power of isolation, right? I mean, almost all of us watched people that we love and respect get radicalized. Like some on the extreme right, some on the extreme left, some in other directions. But they sat alone in isolation with their news source of choice or they stayed glued to their social media of choice and they stopped engaging real people in real life, having real conversations, and within a a year or for some even just a few months, they became almost unrecognizable. We saw this. I mean, it's just like there's anger 
and self-righteousness and virtue signaling and disrespectfulness and an unwillingness to listen to any other viewpoints and a lack of grace and us and them thinking and tribalism and hatred. Isolation brought out the worst in a whole lot of people. Nobody in here, of course, because we are all normal and awesome. But we've seen what can happen through isolation. So Daniel faced isolation, and then he faced enculturation. In verse 5, they are immersed in Babylonian culture. It says they are educated in the language and literature of the Babylonians. And this, this goes way beyond, like, learning the language and then just, you know, learning about the history or reading some of the literature of the Babylonians. You guys, it is enculturation into their values and their ways and their vision for living. This is a type of... of like social engineering. And it's designed not just to educate these boys on Babylon, it's intended to make them Babylonian. It's full immersion into the ways of Babylon. And so we're told that they are, they are brought like the best of Babylonian culture, which, I mean, food and wine from the king's table. More than likely, with female companionship, as was the custom in the ancient world. So this new life is laid out before the boys, and it's like, here you go. Now, Daniel's a, a refugee, right? Odds are he, he hasn't had a decent meal in forever. And so notice what they do. They appeal to Daniel's appetites and his ambitions. That's what this whole thing is doing. Here you go. Like, just give in to your desire. Like, this is all okay because whatever, whatever, the, whatever the rules were, whatever the ways were back home, you're in a new place. This is not how things are done here. You're not back home anymore, so engage in it. Indulge yourself. This is all okay. And they hold out a vision of the good life that is so tantalizing. But in the face of enculturation, Daniel lived out of an alternative story. You know, what we call the Bible, what he would have called the Torah or the Law and the Prophets. And so as we read through Daniel, we see that, that he actually somehow was able to immerse himself in the Scriptures. Now, our culture is, is giving us an enticing narrative about what it means to be human. An enticing narrative about the way to happiness, the vision of the good life. And yet the, the vision of Jesus for the good life often differs significantly. And so in exile, staying rooted to the vision of Jesus for those of us that follow him is vital. You guys, I, I follow Jesus for, for many reasons, uh, many reasons. But a big one is simply, I find his vision for living more compelling and beautiful than any other. I find that it lines up with reality, that it leads me to life and joy. But in a culture that is pushing all kinds of competing visions, it's so easy for me to forget and to lose my way. And so the narrative that I'm living, it really, it really matters. Okay, so you have isolation, then enculturation, and eventually integration. So Daniel and his friends are eventually just integrated into society, and they're thrown right into the teeth of Babylonian culture. Okay, so they're not living in a hippie homeschool co-op in eastern Washington or a safe, carefully engineered life by helicopter parents in suburbia. They are right in the thick of Babylon under the king's roof. 
And yet, in the face of it, they lived out of an alternative way of life, a different narrative, a different story. Daniel built his entire life around spiritual rhythms, like fixed, fixed hour prayer. Uh, we see in chapter 6 that he would pray three times a day, like morning, noon, and night. And that fasting was a regular part of his life and, and reading scripture and communal prayer and worship with his little community. And in a way, each spiritual rhythm was like an act of rebellion against the empire. It served as counterformation against the formation machine of Babylon. And you guys, many of you are finding really good, strong like rhythms to stay rooted in Jesus these days in your life. It's one of the most encouraging things to me about what's happening in our church. And here's, here's what I've noticed about spiritual rhythms. The strongest combination of them always includes both community and solitude. So when I, when I only follow Jesus in the quiet alone, or it's opposite, I only do it in the presence of other people, it's still good. But when I find a way to do both, the power multiplies. And many of you are finding ways to do both, and it's so powerful. So isolation, enculturation, integration, and then finally, identification. So in verse 6, they are flat out renamed. You know, you're not so-and-so anymore. You're this guy. They are renamed Babylonian names. Now, for us, it would be like, okay, that's unsettling. But for them, this was an even bigger deal because in the ancient world, your name was your identity. It was synonymous with your destiny. It, re it re represented the truest thing about you. Your name was your essence in the ancient world. And, and all four Hebrew boys are originally named after the God of Israel. The most common names in the Old Testament for God in Hebrew are Elohim and Yahweh. And so the name Daniel means Elohim is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh shows grace. Mishael means who is like Elohim. Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. All four, when they are renamed, are renamed after gods in the Babylonian pantheon. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar, and Hananiah becomes Shadrach, and Mishael becomes Meshach, and Azariah becomes Abednego. So try to feel what's going on. It's not just, hey, you know what? With Babylonian, it's really hard to pronounce your name. Um, th this, is, this is actually a deeply oppressive move to replace their God-given Hebrew identity with a pagan Babylonian identity. Now, thankfully, it was a failure because, once again, Daniel's identity and his friend's identity was rooted in God. He was renamed, yes, but you notice if you read through the story, there's two fascinating things that happen in the story. Uh, first, Daniel never calls himself by the Babylonian name Belteshazzar. Like all through the story, he only, when he's referring to himself, he only refers to himself as Daniel. Okay, and then second, and you guys, this is like super subtle, and I just think like punk rock. This is, uh, so the writer of Daniel, and we don't know who it is, a lot of people assume it was probably Daniel himself, but the writer of Daniel consistently, through the story, misspells the Babylonian names. It's like the, Daniel, the writer of Daniel, who, whoever it is, is like, yeah, you know what, I don't even really know how to spell that, and I don't really care. I mean, because who cares, because it's not really my real name anyway. It's just a subtle jab 
all through the book. So isolation and enculturation and integration and identification. This is what Babylon does. And by the way, these are the same things that we're facing right here in Pacific Northwest culture. Now, if, if I'm reading this story for the first time and I don't know how this all goes and how it's going to turn out, I get to about verse 7 and I'm thinking, man, these boys don't stand a chance, right? But then the story turns in verse 8. It says, but Daniel resolved. That's huge. That's the turning point. But Daniel Resolved, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Somehow, you guys, this teenage boy found the courage to stare down Babylon. He refuses to fully assimilate. He dares to be different. And this, I would say, is what's often most difficult about life in exile because we live under this like, overwhelming pr- uh, like pressure to just conform to the tyranny of majority opinion. But it is possible to resist the assimilation of syncretism without going the opposite way that many Christians have gone, which is full-on separatism. It is possible to stay true to who we are in Christ while simultaneously engaging the broader culture in beautiful and powerful ways. But to do that, we must stay rooted to Jesus. We must stay true to who we are in Christ. We must live out of the narrative of Jesus and not the narrative of our culture. And so I I just want to share with you guys a helpful paradigm that I've seen at play. Um, And this comes out of spiritual formation literature, but I think this really helps us kind of get a visual of what it is to stay rooted. Um, It's a little acronym, VIP. So vision, intention, plan. To stay rooted, the the first thing that you and I really need is a vision. We need a vision of what life, uh, a vision of life as it it could be, as it it should be, uh, 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 life as Jesus intended. Because we live in a world with competing visions of the good life at a political level, at a moral level, all over the place. All kinds of competing visions of what it is to live a good life. And that's, that's why we need to saturate our hearts and our minds as much as possible in Jesus. So like in the four Gospels of Jesus and the writings in the New Testament. And this is why, you know, being at church regularly with some consistency matters because it helps fill us with vision, right? It, it fills up our mind and our imagination. It's, it's the vision of all that it means to be human, Life as God intended, sexuality as God intended, marriage as God intended, singleness as God intended, right? Money as God intended, racial justice as God intended, power used as God intended, and so on, like emotional health as God intended. It is critical that we get a vision of life as God uh, intended, and then after that, we need intention. At some point, you and I have to decide in our heart, in our will, this is the kind of life I want. I see the vision, and this is the kind of life I want. So you have vision and intention, but then a lot of the times, and this is the sad thing, a lot of people have both of those, and then it stops right there. This third piece is so critical. Finally, we need, we need a plan. We need calculated steps in the right direction, like a tangible, actionable way to actually go about living the vision. Practices or rhythms or routines that help us stay rooted. 
And I, okay, so I think about one of the most difficult battles that some people ever face in their entire lives, alcoholism. And you think about the power of AA. Where does it start? Well, it starts with a vision for a different life, right? It starts with a vision for life apart from alcohol. And then the intention to step into that life is declared in community, but the final piece is the plan, right? The 12 steps. There's a process to live into the vision better. There's literally 12 steps to stay rooted to sobriety. So to be a creative minority, we will need a deeply compelling vision from Jesus, and we will need to set our intentions on living into it, and then we will need a plan to move us in, in the right direction. And you guys, here's what I would say. Over the last six years or so, maybe eight years, it just feels to me like God has moved so powerfully among us. Because so many of you have, have been captivated, like really, you've been captivated by Jesus' vision of the kingdom. And you have been very intentional about living into it, and you have established really healthy spiritual rhythms that root you in it. Many of you are building like a strong just foundation of practices. And I just want to say, so some of you are like, oh, so what are the practices? I just want to say there's, there's no one formula that works for all. There just isn't. Following Jesus is not a formula. Like if you're extroverted, James Fan, it's going to include a whole lot of community. Amen, brother? Amen. Amen. If you are introverted, Heidi Denherter, I hope you're watching, it will include a whole lot of solitude, right? But all of us will benefit from some kind of mix of both. We all need both. And so when you're coming up with a plan, you need to weigh your personality and you need to weigh the season of life you're in. If you're a young parent with three children that are all like toddler age, your spiritual plan may look different than it did when you were in college and you, you, know, you were so busy because you had three classes you had to be at. <laughs> Your season of life matters. But regardless of our season, we have got to have things that root us. We have to. And you have to think about the resources that are available to you. Who are the people walking with Jesus that you could connect with and walk alongside? What are the resources available to show you what, what these rhythms would look like? You have to lean into what you've got. And so many of you guys are just moving forward in such creative ways. As a community, just we are rooted so much deeper than we were six years ago, eight years ago. And I think this is, this is part of what enabled us to navigate COVID really well as a community. And it's, it's what postures us now going forward to not only survive exile, but, but to thrive together in it as a creative minority. I mean, you guys, you guys are doing amazing things to stay rooted to Jesus. Some of you are brand new to this, you're, you know, and this is new for you. And that's like, do the next thing you know you should do and then wait for more directions. Like, it's sort of like the, I don't know, secret services or whatever. God's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to guide you as on a need-to-know basis, right? First thing you, you know is I should go to church. That's why you're here today. And then you get a sense of, okay, here's the next thing I need to do that. And then wait for further instructions. You don't have to have the whole plan to start moving. Um, and you guys are doing amazing things. You're staying rooted to Jesus. And then in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going out into this culture of people that God loves. And you're touching lives. 
all over the place. You guys, I, I could tell story after story after story of crazy stuff that, that you guys are doing to pour beautiful things into the lives of people in our culture. But uh, I want to tell you kind of an unusual story this morning of a person that is facing a, a more literal exile. Um, many of you know that, that my 22-year-old son, Cam, Cameron, lives in Haiti, and that he's, he's lived there over like three and a half years, and it came about as a response to a very difficult season in his life. And what I want you guys to know is that God has met him there in a, a very real way, and it is changing all kinds of stuff for him. Um, so I asked him to share with you what's been happening, and, and he agreed. Um, we're going to do this via Zoom. I recorded it a couple days ago. Uh, and I also want to recognize, many of you don't know his story at all, like where this comes from. So let me just give you like brief background. Um, growing up, Cam was a sports junkie, especially basketball and football. And he started tackle football when he was six years old. And he loved it. Um, and so he just played, played year after year. And around his 13th birthday at football practice, he got a severe concussion. And at the time, we didn't really think much of it. So after a few weeks, you know, of, he, he went back to playing. But after that, every time he would get hit or there would be a massive collision, he would get headaches and a whole bunch of other stuff, and he would need to sit out. And that had never happened in his first seven years of playing. And then within a year or two, we started seeing some really uncharacteristic behaviors. He just wasn't acting like himself in a lot of ways. And life started to go sideways. He had all kinds of, of problems that we, had, we, we would have never imagined for him. And the worst of those being like anxiety and depression and self-harm, uh, all of which escalated into a couple of suicidal overdoses. And so for us, it became this very real possibility that we were going to lose him. So the doctors and the hospitals and the, the specialists weren't helping. Like he was doing everything that he could do. We were trying to get him into, to see anybody he could see, and, and none of it was helping. It was all just spiraling. But Cam had traveled to Haiti to do missions and relief work for years because our family did that, and he would go with us. And as a kid... He would, you guys, he would just come alive in Haiti. So it became like this really unique, special place for him with special people. So when he was 18, uh, we went to see him at the ICU, in the ICU at UW. And Jen and I beforehand talked over an idea, and then we went in and proposed it, and Jen said to him in the hospital bed, Cam, we, we don't know how to help you. Like, sweetheart, we, we love you, and nothing is helping, and we don't know what to do. So I have a crazy idea, and I want to say this was all Jen's idea. What if you tried something totally different and you moved to Haiti? Um, we could see if Pastor Joshua 
that we've been working with for the last few years and his family would take you in. Like, what would you think of that? And he said, I don't know what else to do either. I, I, I like that idea. Well, you guys, three and a half years later, he has built a life with God at the center in Haiti. And um, he met a young entrepreneurial Haitian about a year into his stay there named Edward. And the two of them started a school to teach English to adults, like biz Haitian business professionals and translators. So this was like high-level English. And they, they started about two years ago with eight students. There were eight people that said, hey, we want to do, we'll, we'll do this thing. If you guys start this school, we'll do it. Their school now has about 150 students per year. So they've hired staff, and like this thing has gotten really big. Uh, Cam Cameron's like, he's like a teacher. A it's nice because in Haiti, he's a professor. <laughs> he's Professor Cameron. And he's also like, he's also like the you know, vice principal of this, this school. He hires and fires staff. It's amazing. So two years ago, right, right around that same time, shortly after they were getting the school going, uh, Edward said, hey, do you want to, I'm getting, I'm married and I'm, my wife and I are moving into this two-bedroom apartment. Would you like to move in with us? And he said, absolutely. And so the three of them have built this beautiful community of friends. Mostly it's other teachers at the school and then their adult students who are mostly in their 20s. And, and Cam is, he's following Jesus and he's teaching English and he's pouring deeply into his Haitian community. Okay, but then in the last 18 months or so, um, God has just met him in a deeper way. So Cam has just like rooted himself deeper in Jesus than ever before. So I did this Zoom interview with him to tell you about it and just a couple of warnings. One, his apartment that he lives in is open air, uh, which almost all apartments, nobody has air conditioning and so they want airflow and so they don't even bother putting glass on the windows. It's just all open air most of Haiti. So um, you're going to hear a lot of traffic outside. So if you're, you're like listening to this and you're like, what's going on out there? It's, it, it's okay. Um, also, you guys, I'm, I'm not a tech uh, savant. So, <laughs> so I didn't realize that when I record something on Zoom uh, and he and I are doing a Zoom thing together, it, I'm not in the picture. So like, it, it only, it, what it does is it only records the person that you're talking to, which is fine, because you guys don't need to see me anyway. <laughs> um, but, he, so here we go. This is Cam's experience of life in exile in Haiti and finding ways to become rooted in Jesus. Let's roll it. All right, Cam, so we're in this series about how to survive exile. And you're, you're like living in a very, uh, uh, like, literal form of exile and so um what are some of the things what are some of the difficult things about being in haiti for you you know like the first year or so that you were there when you first got there it was harder um and so what was hard and and what was that like yeah i think for me the biggest thing um in that first year is just the way i was wired is i'm so social um to have community and in that first year, I just didn't have a lot of those natural rhythms in my life, uh, whether it be teaching classes or playing sports or hanging out with friends or whatever. Um, and so it was just yeah, a really lonely time, this, this feeling of like, I don't want to be stuck in this house all this time. And 
where I am. I want to go out and do things, and yet I can't um, because a lot of the logistical things of just not being a part of that community yet and not knowing people well and having a language barrier and just all that different stuff. So um, as COVID hit, um, and you've been in Haiti three and a half-ish years, something like that, as COVID hit, Brookview went online with church services as well as life groups for the first time ever. So um, what did that mean for you? It was huge um, because Brookview had done church on YouTube. And so I was able to access um, some form of what felt like God in my life in some way, watching YouTube videos every Sunday or whichever day worked for me that week. Um, but when COVID hit, and you guys had to get creative about how we do things. The videos and music just sounded and looked and all of it was a lot better um, to be able to have here. But the, the biggest thing um, was just the life groups starting. Uh, and the fact that I'm living in a different country and yet week to week I get together with all these different people um, and get to talk about what it likes what it looks like um, to be a disciple of Jesus and how to live into that um, and have that community that way. Because that's a, it is, it's such a big thing for me. So having that with people that feel like family um, just was huge. Yeah. And you and I have been talking every week for just about the whole time you've been in Haiti. And about 18 months ago, we were having our normal conversation and and you basically said, hey, I was watching church and I feel like God God was really tugging at me. So um, would you tell us about like what happened? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't remember exactly what the sermon was or anything, um, but I just got this sense walking away from it of this call from God to step into some form of relationship with him that's deeper than it was. Um, and at that time I had no idea. I was like, I don't know what to do. You know, it's like, I know you're supposed to go to church. You should read the Bible, but I'm like, but like, how much are you supposed to read and where do you start? And so all these different things. Um, so at that time I, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be born into the Huguenin household. Um, and so I have a pretty good resource in spiritual leadership. And so I just, um, I just decided that next week when I was going to talk to my dad that I would just let him know, like, hey, I had this and I felt like I should respond to it. Um, I felt like God's calling me into something, but I don't really know what where's a good place to start, what that looks like. Um, what are your thoughts for someone who knows me pretty well? And so you just laid out kind of different things you thought would be good and said, what do you think? And I was like, those all sound awesome. So, yeah, that's awesome. So, what was the what was the plan you came up with? What have, what have you been doing like over the last year and a half? A few different things. One, obviously, kind of like I talked about, is just continuing to listen and watch those YouTube videos and um, make that an every week thing part of my life that I do. Um, and then on top of that, that weekly life group um, that's going on, being a part of that every week. Um, no matter what, unless I'm so sick that I'm asleep, basically. Um, 
th those things have just been huge stepping into that. But the this was the the you know the biggest addition to my life would just be um, I added reading from the Bible, and so every week I take a look at four to five chapters from a different book in the Bible, um, and I've been doing it for like you said about eighteen months now and made it almost all the way through the New Testament. Uh, and it's just been super cool to take a look at that further and not just read it, but every week I actually pull out a few different things from each chapter um, that kind of stands out to me. And then from that list at the end of the week, um, I pick one of those things and I, I soap on it, uh, which a lot of people at Brookview Soap if people don't know it, it's just a really cool way for me um, to be able to journal about it and think about the scripture, not just as like, oh, that's good to know, but as a, how do I actually apply this to my life? It's not just good information, but it's also applying it. Yeah, cool. And then you're also doing Bible project videos. Tell, tell us about oh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so before I read uh, from whichever scripture, um, I watched the Bible Project video, and it um, for me, I'm such an audio and visual learner that the ability of those videos for me to um, help me understand historically what's going on, who this is being written to, just kind of all of the background information and the heart of what the author's trying to get at and all that stuff. Um, just kind of having that summary of what's happening before I read it is super cool. And then the reality that then when we talk on Tuesdays now, this is part of what we talk about. So there's accountability built in, I guess, because you know you're going to, I'm going to ask, you know, you're going to read through that stuff. So that it seems like that combo of having, having some that you're doing in solitude and then having that mixed with community. And so you have the community with, um, your life group, and then you have the community and talking through what what's hitting you and, and you're reading yourself and stuff with me is just a, I, I just found that that combo of doing some in solitude and doing and doing some in community is, is really good. And it's worked really well for you because you've done this for 18 straight months, like every week. It's been amazing. Um, all right. Well, you uh, last week we were talking and you shared a soap with me. Will you would you be willing to read that to these guys? Yeah. So I was reading in John. So this is a passage from John. Uh, my scripture was, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. My observation was the idea of being connected to you so that I can bear fruit is beautiful and so cool to me. The fact that we are partnering to do things in this world that there's no way I could do without you is so exciting. I need to remain in you and listen to your guidance. My application was this week, help me go about my day-to-day -day life thinking about the opportunities I have to partner with you and have an impact that would not be possible without you. Help me continue to see you move more and more as I get to have relationship and conversations with the people I do life with. 
And then my prayer was just, I want to remain in you like a branch to a vine bearing fruit. I want to be a person who looks like you. So help me to have you be at the center of my life. When I'm attached to you, I can do amazing things to further the kingdom that I cannot do alone. It's awesome. And it's awesome to just see you you living that more and more and more uh, as you just continue to be connected to Christ. I mean, it's just been, been an amazing thing to watch. So um, what's bringing you joy these days? Um, a lot of different things. Um, but for me... It's, again, over and over, I've talked about it, that social aspect of my life. Um, and it's, it's the biggest thing for me. And so just the different things I get to do, whether we're sitting around a, day, a table and having dinners together or playing a board game or watching sports or all those different things. Um, there's all these really cool opportunities to be with people. But just then what happens in those places because we're gathered and hanging out. Um, I get to have really beautiful conversation, whether it just be about someone's life and their family and different things, or whether it be about God and who he is in my life to me, or like, what are you doing on your phone there in that notebook? It's like, oh, I'm, I'm doing a soap, what is that? It's like, well, I'm reading the Bible and then thinking, and so they're asking a lot of questions and why do you believe that? And so there, there's some really cool things that, um, that happened just because Jesus is the center of my life and how, and you know, it's, I don't, I do it imperfectly, but that's how I want to live my life. And so people are like, what is different about that? And they ask me. And so we get to have really cool friendships and conversation around that stuff. That's awesome. It's just so awesome. It's so awesome. Um, uh, I'm, I have, I'm going to ask one question that I didn't really tell you was coming. Uh, so I'm kind of surprising you with this one. But um, if you had a chance to speak to the people in your life group that have been in your life group over these last three years or so since we started the online group and you were able to get in there, um, what would you tell them and, and, and what have they meant to you? Well, first of all, I would just say hi, guys, whether you're there or online. Um, just, I love them. And they are um, some of the people that I look the most forward to seeing, whether it be in person or just over the screen. The reality of uh, me living in a different country and still every week getting to see these people who care about me and are praying for things in my life and love me and want me to be successful and all those different things. Um, it's just so cool. And it's, again, it's that community centered around Christ trying to live as disciples of him um, and coming together and doing so at all these different stages of life. Um, it's such a beautiful, cool thing. Um, and yeah, and just the, the ability to listen, the way that they listen and, um, you know, just are so, so amazing and, and like family is pretty cool to me. Yeah. Damn, thanks for doing this. Yeah. Love you. And uh, love, just amazing to see what God's doing in your life. I don't know how to end it, yeah. but love you guys. <laughs>
So I, I love that um, Cam referenced the, the fruits of the Spirit, you know, uh, Galatians 5.22, but, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I want to close this thing by simply asking, like, why, why stay rooted in Jesus? Why go to the trouble? Why is it worth it? Why, why resist the vision of the good life that is painted by our culture? And I will, I will simply say this. You guys, when, when I look at our culture, what, think about it. When you look at our culture, is it marked by these things? I mean, our, our culture tells us that we need to sell out for pleasure or for success or for wealth or for recognition. And the life of Jesus is about, it's about love and service and humility and compassion. And, and here's what I see when I, when I compare the two visions. The more people commit to the, the good life as defined by our culture, the less they look like everything up here. It, you know what it looks like? It looks like to me, it looks like anxiety and fear and envy and hopelessness and inadequacy and anger. But, but when people find ways to be rooted in Jesus and they find ways, it's all this stuff. And I, I don't just mean that they like go to church or they're religious or whatever. I mean like they find ways to authentically be rooted in Jesus. And, and for Cam, you guys, I, I don't know how to say this strongly enough. This is what his life now exudes. It just exudes peace. Like he, there, there is a peace that is unbelievable and joy. There's so much joy. He has so much more patience, so much more self-control. All of it is just love and kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness. And, and so here's why this is, okay, this is why I'm giving my life to the vision of Jesus and why I'm giving my life to help others do the same. It's because I've actually lived both lives. Both kinds of lives. I've, I have fully got, like, dove headfirst into our culture's vision of the good life. And I have dove head, headfirst into the vision of Jesus. And you guys, there is no comparison. The vision of Jesus is so beautiful to me and lived into consistently, it produces fruit. Like every time. Lived into it consistently, it produces fruit every time. And so to close, I just want to ask, whose vision of the good life do you want to live into? What narrative about human flourishing is going to be your story? You know, Daniel found a, a vision worth giving his life to. So has Cameron. And so have many of you. And so all I'm saying is, let's help each other stay rooted in it. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, I just thank you that your, your grace is just a never-ending flow to us. No matter where we've been, no matter who we are, no matter what our life has been about, no matter what we were doing last night, you are inviting us into something beautiful and something renewing. And your grace is just pouring out to us through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And because of that, because we see how good you are and how and we, we begin to see how beautiful and captivating this vision is. We want to step into that, and we want to honor you and be taught by you and learn to live into that vision because it produces so many beautiful things in us and in those around us. And so, God, I pray that you would help us 
to find uh, really organic, natural ways that are a good fit for who each of us is and the season of life we're in and our personalities and all of that to stay rooted in you. But not only would this be an individual pursuit, but this would be something we do together in community. God, help us to lean on each other because life in exile is hard. Not just being sucked into the gravitational pull of the culture is really difficult. So help us stick together, help us to honor you, and help us to grow into the people that you're inviting us to become. Amen.